We are uh, this summer in a series where we're going through the book of Nehemiah, and last week the wall was finished in this story. The primary goal that Nehemiah had was to go back to Jerusalem and restore and rebuild the wall. But this has always been sort of a, uh, a two-part project. And in Nehemiah's mind, it, it was, yes, rebuilding the wall, but there was also work to be done in rebuilding the people. There's a lot of brokenness in the people. You know, they've been exiled. They've been treated poorly. They've lived in foreign lands. Um, they've, they've, quite frankly, drifted in their relationship to God. Like, the world's kind of gotten a hold of them, and they're living more like the world than they are the, like, people of God. And so there's, there's disobedience, there's sin, there's just this, this feeling far away from God. And so Nehemiah, along with uh, other leaders, are looking at not only rebuilding the wall, but, but the important work of rebuilding a, a people. And as we've looked at this series together, our church is in the in the process of a building project, building our first building. And uh, with that, as we go through Nehemiah, this summer we not only want to look at what's it mean to actually come together as a church and as a people and build something physical together, but also what if we took this time before we go into the building to really look and go, are there things in me, are there things in us that need to be rebuilt? Like in my life, have I drifted? Uh, am I sort of proud of the, the life I'm, I'm living? Um, are there things that just in my character need to, to change? Are there ways maybe I've just, I'm sort of living more like the world than the way that I, th I know or I think God wants me to live? The amazing story of Christianity is... As long as you have breath, you always have, you always have the opportunity to turn back to Christ. You know, regardless of how far you may feel like you've drifted or no matter what you've done in your life, God's grace is sufficient for all of us. There's always this invitation to come back. And so that's the invitation that God has for the people. It's the invitation he has for you. It's the invitation he has for me. Rebuilding the people is going to be a big project. And one of the things we're going to look at today is the importance of rebuilding culture in, when you want uh, to rebuild a people. You know, culture, it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting uh, thing. Culture's everywhere. And it is shaped, it's created, it's lived out by people. The, the, the convictions we have, the beliefs we have. I mean, if you, if you get a people to believe this, it creates a culture. It affects what people think. It affects how people act. It affects how people treat one another. And so culture is a powerful thing, and it is about people. It's created by people, and it's lived out by people. And so what is the culture that we're creating? 
What, what is the, 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 the culture we have here at the Highlands? That's one question I want to ask. But another question I want to ask is, what's the culture you're creating in your life? Whether it's uh, your life as a, as a family, your life as an individual. What, what sort of culture are you creating or help create or sustaining in the way that you live, because you are. I am too. I, um, I worked for Apple for like three days. Um, that's no joke. A, a, long, a long time ago, I, I got a job. I thought it would be cool to work at Apple. And I got a job at Apple Retail. And uh, I think I signed something saying I, I like wouldn't talk about this, so don't tell anybody, okay? Because <laughs> Apple's really secretive. And they like don't, you know, they don't want anybody to know, and it's kind of like their thing. So if the police run in here and uh, arrest me during the sermon, we know somebody's listening. But uh, don't tell anybody I'm telling you this, all right? So anyways, um, when you get hired by Apple, you go to training, and they call it core, and it's like, three days of intense training. You would think that they are training you on the products. They don't talk about products at all. They don't, in those three days, bring up iPhone, Mac, Apple Watch, whatever they're selling, they don't bring it up at all. They don't go through the specs. They don't care. Have you ever noticed their commercials? They don't talk about the mega gigahertz, the, you know, the storage. It's showing people using the phone, taking pictures, connecting with people. They, they don't sell the, the nerdery. Now, the computer nerds in here love it, all right? They love it. But the rest, you know, it's more about what it can do. And what they're trying to show you is that, you know, you'll be happier, life will be better, with an iPhone or your watch, you know, your, all those things. But they didn't talk about it at all, the specs. They spent three days training you on culture. This is who we are. This is why we are who we are. This is how we look. These are our core values. This is how we look at our customer. And this is how we want you to interact with every single customer. Because at the end of the day, Apple doesn't believe that their specs necessarily sell the products. The products sell themselves, but people sell to people. The culture is what they want their employees to buy into and live out. It's much more powerful than strategy. It's much more, it's much more powerful than even vision, and it's much more powerful than specs. Peter Drucker, who's a, a, a famous sort of business author, he has a famous quote that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Like if, if uh, it implies that the culture of your company always determines success, regardless of how effective your, your five-year plan is, your strategy, um, that culture ultimately trumps all of it. If you don't have the right culture, forget about it. You won't excel, you won't lead, people aren't going to want to work for you, they're not going to give their best. 
If you create a, a culture where people want to be there, they feel empowered, they feel like they have a role to play, that, they're, that, that like they're a part of something bigger than themselves, they're treated well. You give them time off, you give them good wages, you know, those sorts of things keep good people around. And if you can keep good people around, and you can get the best out of good people and good leaders, your organization is going to thrive. You could have a great product, but if your people don't like working there, and you can't hire good people, or they're not get, your people aren't giving your best, it's, it, it's, it's going to be an uphill climb. And that's what Peter Drucker is saying when he says culture eats strategy for breakfast. So, you know, think about our church. Do you feel like you have a role to play? Do you feel like you're a part of something? Um, do you feel like you're bringing something to the table? Because the Bible says, like, the church is a body and everybody has a different part. And the body's not going to function well unless, you know, all of us are playing our part. Like, we're going to be better, we're going to be more effective if we're doing this together. But let's go back to the question about us as a church and our culture. Do you, I mean, new people, maybe this is your first time here, awesome. Um, did you feel welcome when you came in? For those of you who have been maybe here for a couple weeks or a couple months or in the last six months, or maybe you can remember the, like when you were new, did you feel like it was easy to get to know people? Did you feel like there was opportunity to get involved? Do you feel like you're growing in your relationship with Christ? Like these are vital questions that we should always be asking because it's creating our culture. And I think our culture ultimately is biblical in that we're called to be the church, to bring the, the light and hope of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize people, to disciple people. Because we think <laughs> we have the best thing to offer, far better than an iPhone, a car, a house, and that is life everlasting through Jesus Christ. So what is the culture of our church? I want to give you four points today, four principles of building culture from Nehemiah chapter 7 and chapter 8. The first one is this. Building culture requires people who are engaged followers. This is a team effort. You build, people build culture. And, not, and, and, you know, in churches, yeah, there's going to be, you know, the pastor's going to have a heavy influence. You're going to have, you know, leadership that has a heavy influence. But if you want to build a culture, it's going to be engaged followers, people together working as a team. This is why I think uh, unity is brought up so much in the New Testament. You know, the Apostle Paul is just constantly speaking to his churches uh, that he has started and saying, look, you guys, you're bickering, you're fighting, you're not on the same page, like you're sinning. It's this, all of that is being used by the enemy to keep you divided. A, a, a divided group of people is not, gonna, is not gonna build anything worthwhile. But if you wanna build the kingdom and you wanna build a, bib a biblical kingdom culture, 
around Jesus Christ, it's going to require people who are engaged followers. Listen to Nehemiah 7, 4 through 5. Now, the city was large and spacious. The wall's been completed now, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not been rebuilt. So my God put it on my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been first to return. So basically, Nehemiah, like the city is now empty, and it's like, okay, if we're going to like rebuild people, we got to get them back. Like you can't do this like separated. We've got to be together. And I, I would say that. I was having a conversation with somebody who goes, you know, COVID has changed the landscape of the church forever. Okay, maybe it has, but not really in my opinion. And I fought back a little bit. Uh, he's like, you know, we got to think about how like we could start online churches that are just online. And people, you know, we could reach people all over the world. I said, yeah, okay, fine. Maybe that's okay, but I don't like it. Because I just go, I don't think you can be the church by just tuning in. Nobody knows me. Like, uh, I just watch it and like, that's, that's not church. I, I just don't see that in the Bible. Yeah, it's cool we got technology. And it's cool that we can reach people like we've ne- like across the world like we've never been able to before. But that doesn't trump the local church. I, I just, I don't, I find it hard to believe that people are going to experience life transformation by flipping on their live stream for one hour a week. It's great, and we love you that are tuning in online. But the way that we, I look at live stream and the way that I think we should look at live stream is that it should be like the last resort. You know, like you're, 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 you're sick or you're having some physical limitations. Great. Live stream. You can still f- like see people, you're, you know, feel like you're a part of your church. You're on, on at the cabin for the weekend, which a lot of people do in Minnesota in the summer. Great. Like you can tune into the live stream. But if the live stream becomes your first sort of like step into church engagement, I just say, be careful. And you can do it. But I just don't, I don't think you'll get and experience the type of impact unless you're gathering with, each, with other people. Unless we're meeting, we're singing, we're hearing each other, we're praying together. We're, you know, there's opportunity to just connect outside you know, these doors with hopefully coffee again very soon. You know, opportunity just to like, you know, see one another. We're committed to, the, to, the, to offering the live stream, but I, 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 I worry because, and I, I saw a, a really good quote, and I don't remember who said it. I wish I, I could say that it was me, but basically this person said that this, the, the, um, we've, our, our gathering muscle because of COVID um, has atrophied. And this, this gal said it way better than that. But, but basically, that's what she was saying. She's like, the church has got to look and go and, and recognize if our gathering muscles have atrophied. Like, we haven't done it for so long that, um, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're stiff. We don't do it. And how do you, you know, you got to get a muscle going again. You got to be moving. You got to get it going. And, and, and I just want to encourage those of you online watching um, who are maybe, it's e- just easy to tune in from your couch on Sunday. I just wanna, I want, I want to ask you to question yourselves 
what am I missing out? And when, maybe it's time to come back. Because we miss you, and I honestly think, like, we need each other. We need you here. God has a plan, a purpose, a role for you, each of you. We need you back. And I hope that, the, I think this is a global church thing. That, that, that the global church really has to, to work on and pray about um, because we're in the people business. We're not selling products. We're in the people business. And to disciple is to be face-to-face with one another. So culture requires engaged followers, point one. Point two, leaders build culture. So you want leaders who are wise have integrity, and have a focus beyond themselves. Look, the, basically, leaders are, are going to have an influence on the culture of whatever the organization or the, the, church, the church is. And so you've got to look and go, the people that are in those positions, like, we've got to be mindful of who we're giving influence and power to. Because given to the wrong person could be devastating to the church. Given to the wrong person could be devastating for an organization. But listen to Nehemiah 7.2. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. Nehemiah is looking around and he's like, you know, what are, what are the requirements uh, in leading in rebuilding this people is I've got to put people who have integrity, who have character. It's not perfect people. I think sometimes we hear that and we think like perfect. It's not, it's not perfect people, but it is, it is people, men and women, who when they, you know, they're, they're, they're not perfect, but they're living out their faith. They're, they're pursuing righteousness there is a, a fear of God, which in essence means, you know, recognizing God in the right spot. He's God, I'm not. Like, I submit to God. I submit to his commands. I'm, 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 I want to live uh, according to the commandments of God, and I do my best to live that out. You know, the sad story you hear often is pastors failing. Off, you know, usually moral failure that, that um, comes out. Part, you know, most of the time you hear the stories in big churches, um, but I'm sure it happens in small churches as well. It happens in every, you know, big, small, medium churches, but we hear often about the big ones. And um, I was listening to a, a podcast about one church in particular, and one, one person that was interviewed uh, about sort of the calamity of this pastor's poor leadership and poor decisions was like, look, one of the problems that can happen is that we find individuals who are really skilled, great speakers, good organizers. Um, they can create a good pot, like experience. Um, so they're skilled and they're talented and they experience early success, but that skill and success gets out front of character. Their character is falling behind. And uh, this is unfortunately a sad story that is detrimental to the church when leaders' success, their skills, sort of get glamorized more than character. 
or their, their skills and their talents and successes get out in front of character. We've got to make sure, and I'm right there at the top, is that character is something that is always being uh, looked at. That character it means being, you know, dealing with sin. But that requires people. You know, it requires accountability. It requires, you know, I think the sad reality with a lot of these pastors is the higher they get and they become these kind of celebrity pastors is that nobody, like, has access to them. Like, there's a culture that's created. And if you want to read about this culture, there's a great book that my program director, Scott McKnight, wrote called The Church Called Tove. And he talks about this sort of poisoning culture. And a lot of the times the pastor gets so big that people are like, oh, he's a, almost a celebrity. And, and so there isn't a lot of relationship with the pastor. Or the pastor gets so big that, you know, it's a top-down kind of command. What I do uh, and what I say is the way it's going to go. And then there's a fear culture that can come with that. Like, I don't want to mess up. You know, I don't want to speak up if I see anything. And you see how, like, the, the, the character or lack thereof of a leader creates a culture that affects people and groups of people which, which affect the church as a whole. We need people who are seeking integrity because God uses leaders to build culture. If you're a leader... And really, this is not, this is for everyone. If you're a follower of Jesus, guard your integrity with everything you have. Put good people around you that can speak into your life, that you can be honest about what's going on in your life, where you can share, you know, maybe things that are really hard to share. But get people around you who can pray for you and support you and keep you accountable. Number three, core values establish culture. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak to noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was read. The people spontaneously assemble six days before the new year. And Nehemiah tells Ezra to go get the book of the law and all the people listen to the Bible, to the word of God, the, 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 the Pentateuch, uh, from daybreak to noon. And it, they were the people are hearing this, and many were probably, like, had forgotten. Again, they had walked and, and drifted so far from God. There were going to be others that had never heard it. And it was like uh, this moment was an opportunity to, to sort of say, here's how God wants us to live. Here's the culture God wants us to create. It was like this cool opportunity for a new beginning, six days before the new year. And the people, they couldn't get enough of it. Like, you know, to keep people around for that long. It's got to be somewhat engaging, but something powerful was happening where people go, I don't want to be anywhere else than right here. I'm hearing from God. 
This is an opportunity for something new. This is an opportunity for a restart. And so, uh, they are read the law. And the law is really, it's not a set of rules. It is, it is a way of living that God has designed as the best way to live. It's a, it's a uh, you know, you could look at it as core values, the things that should matter most to us. And core values establish culture. It's sort of like a, a, a boundary, if you think of it that way. That we believe this is the, the best way to live, and the law is really, like the commandments of God are a boundary to help keep us in this best way of life. So when it comes to core values, I would say write them down. Read them out loud and discuss what, your, what, what are your core values. What are our core values? You know, we talk about, as a church, um, family, generosity, and discipleship are three core values we have. Family being the family of God. We've been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. And we like to use family language more than community because family is thicker than blood. It, it's, it, there's, a, there's sort of a tightness that comes with family. There's an accountability that comes with family. I mean, you could be a part of the community, but no one knows you. When you're a part of a family, it's kind of for better or for worse, you're in the family. And our church, I mean, that's, we want to be stuck together. And sometimes that's hard, because sometimes we annoy each other. And sometimes we bother each other. Sometimes we hurt each other. But the church, look, it's, it's like we're through thick and thin. We're committed to each other. And then generosity is like, man, we look at Jesus and it's like, the dude gave his life for us. He shed his blood. How can we not respond with generous hearts and offer, you know, our time, gifts, talents, our lives to him? And discipleship. I mean, that's, it's pretty simple. Jesus told us, go make disciples. Like, you need to go tell people this stuff. This is changing the world. And it did. And it is. And it will, it will. But that's what shapes how we look at what we're going to do here. How we do children's ministry, how we do student ministry, how we do small groups, how we do Sundays. It shapes our culture. One thing my wife and I did a, a, a number of years ago, and it's powerful, but we, we looked and go, what we, at the beginning of the new year, we said, what are our core values as a family? What are the things we want to live out as a family? And then, man, you if you do this as a family, and then you live this out, and you talk to your kids about it, and they're involved, it is powerful. We also wrote out, like, what are our goals? What do we hope these core values, the way that we live, well, you know, what are some of the goals that we as a family want to live out together? And it doesn't have to be you as a parent with children. It can be you as an individual. You can have, you should have core values for yourself. But what if you, what if you wrote it down? He said, these are our core values. These, this is the culture we want to create as a family. It could have a powerful impact on your life and your, on your family's life. Number four, what gets celebrated gets repeated. That's a pretty famous Andy Stanley quote. What gets celebrated gets repeated. Nehemiah 8, 16 through 18. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until the day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. This is um, Sukkot, 
This was to remember, God said, you need to do this, build these temporary shelters on this holiday, Sukkot, so that you remember your ancestors who were, were you know, taken out of Egypt and were made their way to the promised land and lived in temporary shelters for all those years. And their joy was very great. And by the way, uh, uh, Jews still do this today. In fact, during Sukkot, if you go into areas where you have a lot of Jewish people living, you'll see the temporary shelters. They still put them up today. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day of the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. They're celebrating. And what celebrated gets repeated. Celebration is a fantastic and powerful way to reinforce the things that we value. That's why we do this on Sunday. That's why we gather. I mean, one, in one part, why we gather. It shows us what's important. People, you know, love to be celebrated. And it makes them want to do what they are celebrated for doing again and again and again. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Are you trying to make it in your life on strategy and effort? Or are you focused on leading and participating in building culture? The people of Nehemiah reclaim a biblical culture. This required the work of God, leaders, and willing followers. But what we see in this story is an example of biblical revival. A rebirth, another chance, a new season. And we as a church are on the cusp of a new season as we go into this building. But more than the excitement of getting into our own building, there is an opportunity in this season for revival. For, the, for, for us to be a part of capturing the hearts of people for Jesus Christ. But we've got to work, all of us, together in creating a culture that sees that happen. Let's stand together and pray. Jesus, uh, you are good, and so often we are not, and yet your grace is sufficient for us that you are enough in, our need, in the midst of our needs, that uh, you, God, see past our, our, our sin, and you love us nonetheless, and we say thank you. And you're, we just, we pause to recognize how powerful that is. And Jesus, as you were here, you created uh, a culture of love and goodness and redemption and hope. And I pray, God, that we as a church would do the same in your footsteps. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.